0: Today's podcast is sponsored by the Reformation Art of Catherine Marchand. Start your collection today at catherinemarchandart.com. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation.
1: Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman, professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. Here with my usual co-host, Todd Pruitt, uh, pastor of the PCA church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I was word perfect on that. I usually forget I know some you, you detail forget some detail.
2: Now you didn't name my church. Covenant. There you go.
1: Very original name for a PCA (laughs) church. Isn't it though? I think
2: we're the only Covenant Presbyterian Church in all of the PCA. I think so. I think Uh so. Uh,
1: I've never come across that name before. very rare. Yeah, yeah. We actually have the other Orthodox pastor in the PCA (laughs) with us today, Uh, Reverend David Hall, who's pastor of Midway Presbyterian Church uh, near Atlanta in Georgia. Uh, David's greatest uh, claim to fame, however, is is not that he's pastor of this church, but that he's married to Anne Hall. Anne Hall, who is uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the most entertaining people <laughs> I've ever met. I think Anne has that lovely gift of. Uh, straight talk, uh, and we would love to have. But Anne very on the southern, podcast. very southern, very southern. Yeah, very, she introduced me to the phrase "bless her heart," <laughs> which apparently is not a compliment. So, you know, it sounds complimentary, but it, it's actually mm-hmm. uh, a very really different yeah. way of, of thinking about people. Mm-hmm. So, so David, it's great to have you on the program. Let's talk
3: about Anne. How is she? <laughs> She's great. Thanks for all those nice things you said about her, and they're true. <laughs> Uh, she has a new updated version of Bless Your Heart. It's, oh, that's cute. And where she just sort of dismissively <laughs> pats some of us men in the head and, and laughs and says, yeah. oh, that's really uh, a fantasy. But she is well, and uh, we have uh, been healthy. Thank you for asking. And uh, we wash our hands a lot. And uh, we, we were Presbyterians. <laughs> I told our congregation yesterday. Uh, some of the social distancing is becoming a little bit relaxed around yeah, here. And I said, yeah. now listen, folks, remember we are Presbyterians before the pandemic and afterwards we don't hug yeah, yeah. <laughs> much that much. Preach it. it, preach it, brother. Today. So let's return to our good, uh, sterile Presbyterianism. Excellent. Absolutely. We're our church is, is uh, under the Lord's blessing. We've continued to do our ministry here. It's been a challenging time to be sure. Uh, we actually in the state of Georgia had some uh, green lights to reopen our ministry and I think May third was our first uh, worship service, and okay. we're following social distancing and being yeah, very careful right. but we're we're among those who are very grateful to be able to return to corporate worship and I'm, uh, I'm
1: hearing rumors of a man burn or a ponytail david is uh, is that is that correct?
3: Um, <laughs> We're we're going back to this is partially pandemic inspired, but also, Carl, as I mentioned to you, the Laurel Canyon episode on Epics. Uh, I sort of am revisiting 1968,
1: 69. Uh, and, Swanson, uh, excellent, excellent.
0: One yeah, not? <laughs> why not?
1: Well, David, we want to talk to you about a number of things today, but first and foremost, of course, the, the way we first connected, I think, and got to know each other is through the Excellent Reformation Worship Conference that you run each fall, and I believe it's going to run again. Uh, this October, but on a slightly modified, possibly modified schedule. But maybe you could just tell us about why Why do you do this conference every year, specifically on, on Reformed, Reformation worship? Why do you think it's important to to keep hammering away at essentially the same kind of topic year after year?
3: Yeah, we, we do have a good bit of repetition um, in our conferences because, because folks still haven't gotten the message. Worship is centrally important <laughs> yeah. to... Christian discipleship and to Christian spirituality, it's the one unified uh, meeting time of the week when all Christians gather. And there is, as your audience is well aware, upheaval, a seismic change in the view of worship over my lifetime in ministry. I mean, I started off in the Jesus movement, came to Christ in 1972 through Campus Crusade and, and did have a ponytail and did go to seminary. Straight from Labrie, with a ponytail, and we made fun <laughs> of all of those guys who had briefcases and suits. Uh, so I've kind of been there, done that, and uh, we we tell people we actually did contemporary music before it was a, a trend. Uh, but it's it's very shallow. It's not sustaining. There's there's not enough in the the broad evangelical shallow worship to sustain one's life and one's family through ups and downs, through death, tragedy. Uh, pandemics, and all kinds of the events that that the Lord gives us. So uh, we keep hammering on that theme, A, because no one else is, and B, because it's utterly important. Uh, It doesn't go out of date. We have a wonderful stable of compatriots. Carl is one of them. Todd was here for the last year or two. And uh, we try to encourage churches to be strong, to be faithful, to be biblical,
2: that's good. Um, I, I've really appreciated the content um, these last couple of years I've attended. And you, you just mentioned uh, uh, ha- having an autonomous zone, which, of course, uh, makes me think immediately of, of some of the love and the harmony that's going on up, say, in in, in Seattle r- right now. Um, we are living, um, at the risk of being very cliched here, we are living in very fascinating times right now. Uh, there is a, 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 a nearly puritanical, uh, t- to use, t- to use a, a negative reference to the Puritans, um, a, nearly a puritanical insistence on moral conformity uh, right now, the likes of which I don't think I've ever seen in my lifetime. Uh, uh, there's there's a, a, a system that is being birthed that has its own dogma um, uh, heretics have been identified and are being dealt with swiftly, and um, a, a whole moral structure um, is being uh, put together uh, right before our very eyes. That I think would make a lot of uh, mid-century uh, Baptist legalists uh, blush um, with just how insistent they are on uh, on on conformity. Uh, of course, you know you you, you know what I'm. Talking about right now. In fact, I think you've kind of termed it the the, the new perfectionism uh, that's going on. Uh, un- unpack that for just for just a moment, if you will.
3: Yeah, sure. It's 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 sort of amazing. As as a father who has has two daughters, you know, you always hope for your daughters to be safe and not not to be sexually harassed. And with the rise of the Me Too movement a couple of years ago, uh, it's been breathtaking to see sexual morality in the workplace change to a puritanical version, mm-hmm. which in, in one sense I cheer uh, as, a, as a biblical Christian uh, to, to have told us even as recently, say 10 years ago, that in workplaces every creepy sexual harasser would be prosecuted or removed from any public position yeah. uh, would have been the platform of, say, the Southern Baptist Convention right. uh, to see that happen. And to see, I forget who it was, about a year ago, I forget, Carl, you'll remember who it was, the, the rock star who said she wasn't going to have sex anymore uh, until we changed all of that's right racial Ooh. structures. Yeah. I thought, well, you know, that that's kind of a, a purity ring ceremony <laughs> exactly. that the folks who, you know, are, are, are big in, in courtship could never envision. <laughs> right. uh, and now to see statues brought down and, and public buildings renamed, uh, even as a southerner. Uh, I'm not a fan of of Woodrow Wilson's internationalism uh, and his political platform. And to see Princeton rename
0: Mm -hmm. uh, their
3: school of international relations and drop his name, uh, it's just fascinating. And and to see the purity, the moral purity with which secular movements are going, and, and, and one can never go far enough, one can never repent enough, one can never reparate enough to satisfy uh, certain critics, and as a fairly typical normal sinner, I'm quite a fan of forgiveness and repentance, mm. and confession, yeah. and uh, being being freed of, of sins, but in the present secular milieu, it's virtually impossible to ever be righteous enough, and, and mm-hmm. so it reminds me, Ann and I just had a short <clears throat> visit with my mom, uh, over the weekend. And, and it reminds me of what, you know, my Methodist mother always repeated these Methodist tropes, you know, nothing good ever happens after midnight. Right. And, uh, now we find, you know, secular folks, uh, miming those, uh, and, and calling for an equality of income and perfect utopian racial harmony. It, it's, it's, man, you're, you're going to announce Carl and, and Todd, it's going to be a great world probably within a week. <laughs> That's uh, the the eschatology is 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 rampant. Uh, to think that we have such utopian uh, possibilities mm-hmm. and so it, this new perfectionism is is just a, it's it's breathtaking to me.
2: And it's extraordinary uh, that you know at, at at the dawn of the twentieth century, of course, um, mainline Protestants thought with a lot of the rest of the world, at least the the, the the intellectual elites, mainline Protestants thought, you know, the 20th century is going to usher in a, a golden age. They, they named their magazine in anticipation of that the Christian century. Oh. Uh, you, you had writers like um, H.G. Wells, who had been uh, utopianists early on, though. But, but then after the Great War and with the dawning of, of the Second World War, Um, All of these former utopianists uh, became uh, pessimists. You know, I think about William Golding and Lord of the Flies. Um, You know, Golding early on had been a a utopianist. He was one of those that thought the 20th century with our advancements is going to to, to yield an equal, prosperous, peaceful culture. And after the the millions of lives lost in wars, he, he wrote Lord of the Flies. Uh, you know, put some innocent boys on, on an island, and they're going to eventually kill each other. And yet now, uh, just decades later, we have not learned the lesson about human depravity very well. I mean, I, my, my thought the other day was, I never saw anything as legalistic in my Southern Baptist upbringing as what I'm seeing in, in the, the legalistic secularism that's going on right now.
3: Right. Yeah, and it's it's a strong force. There's a, there's a desire for perfectionism. Uh, I, I think in the in the short note I, I said to you, the five points of neo-perfectionism uh, I could summarize as, mm. as looking for morally perfect public displays, <laughs> aspiring for utopian economic distribution, sex-free workplaces, a monastic purity of intent, and no legal structures. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's sort of like you know, an Anabaptist zone uh, of, of entirely perfect sanctificationism that has already come in. And and even back in the early spring, Ann and I were reading some newspaper articles about how millennials don't go to bars to drink alcohol anymore. They go to pubs for energy drinks. And uh, my friend Barry Shane from the political science department, you know Barry, Carl, have you met him? I have not, no. Wonderful, wonderful man. You should meet him. Uh, he's he's probably about to retire, but he's, he's a at Colgate. Um, and even 20 years ago, he said there, there was a, an attempt to remove fraternities from campus because they were entirely too testosterone based. Um, and, and one can never do enough. So right. guilt is guilt is served in heaping doses and, and even sincere repentance is impossible. Right. It's sort of like, you know, being asymptomatic with COVID-19. Uh, Not to get into that, I know that's a hot-button topic, but, you know, if if a person is asymptomatic with COVID-19 and they never have any symptoms and they never spread any symptoms, how bad is that? Right. (laughs) It's an impossible category, and I think the the neo-Puritans, who are secular Puritans among us, uh, have created conditions of societal expectations uh, that simply cannot and never will be uh, met uh, it's what uh, the the social theorist Eric Vogelin called the over-eminentization, over-realized eschatology, yeah. Yeah. where heavenly norms are somehow um, incarnated now. Uh, and you're right, Todd, that, that, that those don't last. There's there's a wave to these social movements. Uh, you, you men are both a good bit younger than I am. I, I actually lived through the 60s <laughs> in my hometown. Ponytail and all. Yeah, in in Tennessee, you know, I lived in Memphis. Dr. King was shot there. We had three successive summers of of burning, uh, of riots. And, and, you know, there were were very tense times, and I think we see that being repeated. Uh, But one of the things that strikes me, as I shared with a coworker last week, one of the things that strikes me, and I I saw over the weekend a Pew survey noted that five out of six protesters were white Mm. uh, in the last month. And one of the things that strikes me is that of the, of the young people I know involved in these, heavily involved, they're from very affluent right. white homes uh, in the economically blessed West. And they have plenty of time. This neo-leisure class also has plenty of time for outrage.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: yeah. Uh, But throughout the world and throughout history, um, those who are working class and those who are truly oppressed don't seem to quite have uh, the discretionary time on their hands
1: yeah.
3: uh, for some of these things. So it's a privilege, it, it really is a privileged class calling for privileged people to surrender their privilege. That's, I mean, that's <laughs> a point. At some point, point in time, those will loop back. You're right, you, you're going to know, they're going to loop back and, and some at some point in time, those those cycles will <laughs> re- reverse back and bump into each other. Right.
1: That's a point Camille Pally has made numerous times that, that, that sort of today's trendy uh, radicals, are entirely parasitic on the, the system that they claim to decry I wonder David uh, I was very struck a couple of years ago I read David Reif's book in praise of forgetting he's the son of Philip Re the sociologist and Susan Sontag the the feminist theorist and in this book he, he made an interesting case and I you know you and I both love history and one of my criticisms in some ways of modern societies is ahistorical. People people forget their history. And yet Reeve made the point that there are moments when it's actually appropriate to forget history, that there are things that have gone on in the past that need to be forgotten in order for reconciliation to take place in the present. And he's actually speaking specifically, I think, in this book about the Balkan situation. And making the case it's time for the Serbians and it's time for the Croatians, etc., to to forget the past. And he talked about South Africa and saying, you know, South Africa, the peace that was ultimately brokered there, was a result of people being ultimately willing to actually forget the past. To what extent do you think uh, today in America there's a need for for the various sides to not remember the past so much as to forget it
2: like a deliberate forgetfulness yes i'm
1: not i'm not talking about the kind of when i say we live in an ahistorical world that's the sort of the ignorance you know Mm -hmm. there's difference between ignorance and active forgetting Uh, well
3: yeah i i think that's a a very good point you know in a a marriage mm -hmm. in a -hmm. a, a marriage um you you have to um, move beyond past hurts and injuries Mm -hmm. and In 1 Corinthians 13, of course, it tells us that love keeps no record of wrongs. Hmm. Well, I can't tell you how many marital counseling sessions I've had that that frequently end up in divorce where people actually bring in notebooks of wrongs or or ledgers and diaries and years' worth of collected wrongs. Well that's the antithesis of love and, and a marriage simply isn't going to work that way. You, yeah. we have to consciously forget something. So I, so I think that's a, I think that's probably a, a, a good point. I know we, we would risk being accused of making light and not truly repenting if we simply right. forget. And right. I don't think any of us are calling for a papering over yeah. of past social ills. What, what we're trying to say is, but, but we must at some point stop the wars and stop the accusations, and, and we do need to love each other, and it would be nice to see some wing of the Christian church, or at least broad evangelicalism, where people would, would say love keeps no record of wrongs. Mm-hmm. We, we forgive, we, we, we grant forgiveness, and we, we move ahead. Um, uh, you know, I'm sure I'll be accused of, of that being a voice of privilege, but…
1: It's the good. ideology of forgetfulness. Yeah. it serves yeah. your it serves your end to forget that that's will be right. the response yes. at that point right uh, but
3: but anybody yeah. it, it if you go back to the marriage analogy you know that's that's a staple that's an yeah. essential part yes. of yeah. of marital relating that every spouse has to learn to do mm-hmm. and part of that constitutes good marriages that's why marriages last 40 50 60 years instead of 12 months
2: yeah
1: right i've lost count of the the, the wrongs against me
3: by my wife that i
1: consciously forgotten.
3: And don't <laughs> carl yeah carl i tell you uh, yeah he, well i have them uh, she's emailed that whole file to me so be <laughs> oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure that, she, <laughs> read those now, that Anne, like, is,
1: Anne is sitting on a file i'm sure
3: uh, <laughs> well you know I mean, carl is a historian and i i know you you like the quote that, that you know those who forget history are destined to repeat it uh, i rather like pj o'rourke's auxiliary change to that he says those who failed their lessons of history also fail their lessons of geometry and spelling (laughs) those are the kind of guys i went to high school with yeah Yeah. and there there's something to what o'rourke says there there's an organic tie (laughs) epistemically if we forget the lessons of history we probably are going to be defective in several other areas as well Uh, and, and that's um, a good reminder.
2: And, and isn't it interesting how it, it seems like every attempt, every human attempt to bring heaven to earth to achieve a utopia ends up costing millions of lives um, in the attempt. Um, I'm, I'm reading a, a biography right now on on Robespierre, and it's fascinating uh, just the basic ignorance of, of the human heart that goes into these projects um, and how necessary. The biblical understanding of original sin is.
3: Well, I think one of the things we have to share and we have to teach in our congregations to do a better job of is is the expectations. You know, those who those who think of themselves as world changers. And I, I think I grew up in that time in yes. evangelicalism when every youth conference or every large meeting I went to as a late teenager or college student, we were told, you can change the world. Right. You, 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 you just one person can change the world. And that has those seeds have grown now over the last 30 or 40 years mm, and we have radical millions of, of yeah. folks running around in our churches with with an excessively uh, narcissistic view that, that yeah. they, they all think they're going to change the world' it's, it's right. like we've told our children in athletics and we've all had children involved in sports uh, or at least I hope you have and I know I know we have you know there aren't that many Michael Jordans <laughs> right uh, there there aren't that many folks who attain the upper 1% in order to be able to play in the, in the NFL or the NBA. And so every 13-year-old boy is just not going to be a home run hitter or, or a basketball superstar. And yet we tell them, and, and our, our mothers mean well. I mean, I think we're living through a generation in which our, our Methodist mom's voice, I, I think particularly of, of Sarah Young's books, Mm. It's kind of like a, a Methodist mom's voice cheering her children yeah. on saying, you can do it, Sonny. You can be anything you want to. Pull yourselves up by the, the bootstraps. You can be anything you want to. And my mom told me that. And Well, I'm sorry. It's not true. I hope right. my mom's not listening. <laughs> yeah. But it's just not true. I can't, yeah, I can't play in the NBA. I just right. don't have the physical wherewithal. Mm-hmm. There are a yeah. lot of things I can't. Yeah, and I, and I think that
2: this is where, you know, the, the biblical doctrine, again, of original sin, um, there's, there's a liberty to that, of, of realizing that we are not actually partnering with God to remake the world, as much as some language from some of my fellow PCA pastors seems to mimic that. We're not God's partners in remaking uh, the world. We are uh, laboring to make Christ known until the consummation of the ages. And those are two very different visions, aren't they?
3: Yeah, they are. Now, you know, I've learned a lot from from medical professionals over the years. A lot, a lot of Americans hate docs because they make a lot of money, and and particularly in some specialties, they're sort of snobby, and, and that that happens. <clears throat> but I've had the privilege of working with a number of uh, medical doctors on sessions, and the thing that struck me it was the medical doctors who taught me the reality of the finiteness of our health that health insurance wasn't going to fix us, mm-hmm. uh, and that we all have physical maladies. And, and what's most refreshing, if you look around, the doc you love or the professional you love, and I hope the pastor you love, has a limited view of his own efficacy right. and self-importance. I mean, we keep we keep telling people over and over again in our church, we, we, we love you. We will walk through whatever this crisis mm-hmm. is with you, but there's just not a whole lot we can right. fix. right. We can preach, we can pray, we can trust the Holy Spirit to do his work, but we can't make cancer go away. Mm. We can't cure world hunger. Uh, I can love my neighbor this day, and we should be busy doing that. So these massive macro views for college students to imply that a 22 year old's gonna change the world really misleads them. It sets them up for great frustration uh, when they they realized 10 years later that the world is a pretty big place. Economic systems are actually very tenuous, and they, they're tenacious. They don't change very often, and we're, we're small, small people, yeah. and I'd rather be in a church or read a theologian who understands that he has a limited calling
0: mm-hmm.
3: uh, and we should be faithful in those areas uh, than someone who's going to mislead me into thinking, that we can change yeah. Uber structures. It just—it right. just, it just uh, is. It's—it's a—it's a deception. Yeah.
2: And so, to our audience, we say. Be joyful and satisfied in living the ordinary Christian life. Love God. Love your neighbor. Please don't try to change the world. Um, The the Lord is going to do with his world as as he pleases, Um, but until Jesus comes, uh, love God, love your neighbor, and you'll have a far greater impact on people's lives if that's what you're seeking by doing that rather than to try to, quote, change uh, the world. Well, our guest has been uh, uh, David Hall, pastor of Midway Presbyterian Church in the greater Atlanta, Georgia uh, region. Be looking for, and we'll certainly promote on our site, uh, the upcoming uh, Reformation Worship Conference this fall that's going to be held, Lord willing, at uh, at that wonderful church. And uh, if you would swing by our website, mortificationofspin.org, we have a giveaway for you. It's a book by David Hall called The Arrogance of the Modern. The Arrogance of the Modern. Um, I have this book. It is a wonderful, rollicking read and a great assessment of, of our present uh, cultural moment. And uh, I think that you'll enjoy it a great deal. So if you'll go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can register to win a copy of The Arrogance of the Modern. David, thank you for being on with us today.
3: Thank you. We, we love MOFs, love what you're doing, keep being on that cutting edge, uh, and uh, thanks, thanks for the time. Thanks, David. Well, to our audience, thank you for joining us today.
2: And we'll look forward to talking to you next time on Mortification of Spin.
1: When you see the Southern Cross for
3: the first time, you understand now why you came this way. Because the truth you might be running from is so small. But it's as big as the promise, the promise of a coming.
1: My friends, have you ever said to yourself, I would like a career in radio announcing? If the answer to that is yes, then you're going about it in the wrong way. You should say it to someone else. What does it take to become a radio announcer? Well, actually, it takes many things. Do you own your own voice? Can you say six silly words without laughing? Well, if so, you qualify for enrollment in the Golden Voice Announcer School. In addition to announcing, our voice training course will teach you to impersonate TV and motion picture stars like this. Mm-mm. Howdy, partner. I'm John Wayne. Or, Mm-mm. howdy, partner. I'm Natalie Wood. Isn't that exciting? Here's how to take advantage of this limited offer: send thirteen thousand dollars and any priceless heirloom to Golden Voice Announcer School, care of Phil's Barber Shop, Waco,
0: Texas. <laughs> Celebrate the heroes of the Reformation with limited-edition prints by artist Catherine Marchand. These high-quality prints capture the unique personalities of Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, Wycliffe, Calvin, and others. Reproduced on artist top-grade rag paper, these prints will soon become a treasured part of your personal collection. Award-winning artist Catherine Marchand presents Reformation Art. Start your collection today. Purchase prints online at Catherine That's Catherine with a C, M A R C H A N D, Catherine